Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. My name is uh, Michael, and this is my miracle story. Uh, there's a number uh, that will always stick with me, and that number is 21. Uh, for 21 days, I fasted, and for 21 days, I had a cancer diagnosis. It really all started uh, in the end of December 2018, uh, I had an 11-month-old daughter at the time, and she was a very happy baby. But going into um, that time, we, we noticed her temperament started to change. She lost the desire to want to stand up on her own. Uh, she wanted to crawl less. We knew something was up, uh, and we took her to her primary care doctor, uh, and her doctor suggested we go see uh, a handful of different specialists. And around this exact same time, uh, I felt God put on my heart to do a 21-day food fast. And, you know, I remember on day about 18, I thought the lights in the house were going to start to flicker, maybe even the, the ground rumble a little bit, and I was going to have this, you know, miraculous moment. And day 18, 19, 20, 21 went by, and uh, the lights did not flicker. My prayer list in the fast, I wrote all these prayer requests down, uh, was the health of my daughter. We finally got her diagnosis. Uh, she was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis. And basically what that is, is her body was attacking itself. Uh, her ankles, knee, hip, and her elbow were all affected. Um, they were swollen, uh, they were inflamed. And basically uh, for her movement meant pain, but with uh, a diagnosis comes a treatment plan and you know I will say life was pretty good we had this diagnosis but um, you know it wasn't doom and gloom we were still happy and growing in our family relationships and um, in October of 2019 I was diagnosed with testicular cancer uh, a few days prior I had a an America's funniest home videos moment and got whacked pretty hard below the belt but uh, so I went to go get that checked out. I was told that news early on a Monday morning. They scheduled me for surgery on Friday. I'll, I'll never forget the night before surgery as my wife was holding Ava and just said, you know, it's a, it's a good thing we, we serve the everlasting God. And one saying we, we say to each other all the time is, it's good to be rolling with the king. You know, I, I really don't know how people go one day without him. I had my surgery the next morning. Surgery went went great. Uh, surgery didn't bother me, but but the uh, I had to do the full body CT scan, uh, ultrasounds, and some more blood work to make sure the cancer didn't spread. Uh, to me, that was the that was the scary stuff. Uh, so we go back in a couple weeks later, waiting for the doctor to come in, and he practically throws the envelope of results in my lap, and he says, "You're cured." Praise God, people go through so much worse. I only held this diagnosis for three weeks. It's only 21 days exactly. Oh yeah, 21 days. Like, that's, that's how long I fasted for. And in that moment, and I just felt so much peace, and from that point on, uh, there was nothing but great news with my daughter. Uh, my wife took her in for one of her follow-ups, but just as abruptly as my doctor walked into my appointment, 
her doctor walked into her appointment and told my wife, uh, we're done. And he said that she's been doing so well, um, we do not need to do the weekly injection anymore. Uh, in fact, if I had just met her today, I would never know that she ever had a disease before. He called me to fast for 21 days, and I only had that cancer diagnosis for 21 days. And through that whole time span, he was with my daughter in her worst days, and then at the, in, in the end, in her healing. But just thinking about it, I get real fired up for the kingdom, and it really is good to be, to be rolling with the king. Well, Venture, I don't know about you. It is awesome to hear stories like that. And I really appreciate Michael sharing. In fact, I'm excited about this whole series because throughout it, you're going to hear stories how God is still working in people's lives today. And we've been hearing from so many big ways, small ways, but we serve a living and active God. In fact, we've entitled this series Marvel. And I don't know what you think about when you see that word Marvel. Uh, in my household with uh, teenagers, college students, uh, first place we go is uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Marvel comic books, all the superheroes, Spider-Man, Iron Man. I, I mean, if you've tracked it, it really is amazing. All the big blockbusters of the last decade, they're all around these superheroes, or meta-humans, as they call it. People that have abilities with extraordinary powers. And there's something about a culture and people, we love stories like that. But we recognize those are fictional stories. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, and if, like me, you believe the Bible, there's some pretty amazing stories in there as well. And for some people, it's hard to embrace those stories. I'm talking specifically, as you read throughout the Bible, you see these miracles. And unlike the... Uh, MCU or the comic books, we actually believe they're real stories. We actually believe they happen in human history. Now, I, I know even when I say that word miracle, a lot of you can struggle with that. I mean, you just start categorically not believing it. Uh, let me point out what I mean. When, when you say miracle, here's how Webster defines it. And I thought it'd be good just kind of set a context even for this series. A miracle is an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. By, by nature, everybody recognizes it's extraordinary. It's beyond ordinary. It's divine. We believe God is actually intervening. And it's in our affairs. It happens in our world. And so when I say that, I, I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. I, I think he puts it in more colorful terms. He describes it like this. He says, a miracle is something unique that breaks a pattern so expected and established, we hardly consider the possibility it could be broken. I mean, we, we, we just, we're so used to it being one way. He gives this example. He says, if for thousands of years, a woman can become pregnant only by sexual intercourse with a man, and then she were to become pregnant without a man, it would be a miracle. It's pretty outside the norm. Now, even as I say that, I, I know there's so many people in our culture today, and maybe you're one of them, you look at it, it's a non-starter for you. I think of the philosopher David Hume. He railed against the miracles. 
He thought even bringing them up was, was breaking the rules. Look what he famously said. A miracle is a transgression of the law of nature. It's a, a particular violation of a deity. It's the interposition of some invisible agent that you're reaching for. You know, a few years ago in The New Yorker, uh, the, the writer Adam Gobnick, he, he wrote the following, and, and he's pretty bold in it. He says, we know, he's talking about miracles and faith, but in the middle of it, he just kind of puts this statement. He said, now we know that in the billions of years of the universe's existence, there's no evidence of a singular, single miraculous intervention of the laws of na- nature. And when I read that, I go, really? No evidence. He said in the same way, we need not imagine there's no heaven. We know there's no heaven. We need not search for angels. We know that's vain. Now again, do you you hear the certainty with what he said? And a lot of our culture would agree with him. I mean, this is one of the things, and I'll just admit it right out of the gate as as a Christian, as someone who believes the Bible. I know this can put us at odds with our culture. That, that people maybe like the stories of the Bible, they don't really believe them. You know, Thomas Jefferson was such. He liked the Bible. He liked the moral teaching of the Bible. He, yeah, he actually went through the Bible and he took a razor blade and he cut out all the sections that were miraculous. Because in his mind, he knew they couldn't be true. Now, can you be a rational person today and believe in miracles? You know, there's a, a book by Ian Hutchinson. And I'd recommend it because he does a lecture and then he wrote a book based on it. And the title of it is, Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? And he says this. He's a physicist, got his doctorate. He teaches at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, one of of the most august institutions in our country. And he does this lecture at universities where he talks about it. And he starts the lecture. He says, hey, can a scientist believe in miracles? And kind of humorously, he says, well, I'm a scientist. I believe in miracles, so yes, a scientist can believe in miracles. Part of it, though, listen how he frames it, and I think this is important. He said he notes that most of us don't understand the Bible's view of miracles. He says, we tend to view God as mostly hands-off, standing on the sidelines, letting nature look after itself. But then on rare occasions, he reaches in to tweak things by the odd miracle here or there. And and listen to what he says, because I think this is so important. According to the Bible, God continuously holds the universe in the palm of his hand. It exists because of his continuous creative power and will. If he were to stop exerting that upholding power, stop paying attention to every part of the universe, it would instantly cease to exist. See, that's the foundation of what we believe, that that everything we see, the laws of nature, all of it that works together so continuously, so perfectly that we have science, that we can study it, that happens because our God holds it together. And, And so as Hutchinson goes on, he says, a miracle then is an extraordinary act of God by which God upholds a part of the universe in a manner different than normal. Yes, we know so much more today than people did long ago, but what we know today makes the universe seem, if anything, more open. And he says this as a scientist, as a physicist. I don't know if you read modern physicists. 
And many of them are Christians. Because as they start understanding the mysteries of our universe, just like Hutchison, they go, this is more open than maybe we realize. Now, I want to tell you, this whole series, I'm not going to really be defending miracles. That's not even the purpose of this series. You know, a year ago, last summer, we had uh, Lee Strobel, who's written an unbelievable book, The Case for Miracles. And we had Lee, and he came, and, and he delivered that message, The Case for Miracles. And then the next week, we just did Q&A about this subject of miracles. And so I'd encourage you, go online, go to the site. You can go back and look at those messages if you have questions about it. I think there's few people that answer it as clearly and as well as Lee does. In fact, I'd invite you this weekend, uh, March the 7th on Sunday night at 6 o'clock, we're actually having Lee again for another seminar. And he's going to be talking about what does it mean to be salt and light? How, How do we take answers out into the world and reach people with the questions that they're asking? And and I'd encourage you, this is open to anybody. That's on the website as well. You might want to join and see Lee again. But for this series, we didn't entitle this series Miracles. Because I'll just tell you right now, the stories we're reading, we're going to talk about miracles Jesus did. And I just believe he did them. I believe the stories are real. In, In fact, the reason we're not focused on the miracle And we entitled it Marvel. Have you ever looked up the definition of Marvel? What's a Marvel? A Marvel is a wonderful or astounding person or thing. A Marvel is either a thing, but especially a person that does these wonderful, astounding things. And and what we're looking at in the series are some of the miracles of Jesus. Because he's the Marvel. And Jesus did so many miracles. In fact, we've got about 30-something recorded in the Bible and the different Gospels. And it's interesting to me, in the book of John, he only records eight miracles of Jesus. Seven that we see he did, and then one that he accomplished for all of us. And John tells us why he recorded these miracles. He tells us exactly why he points out these things. Look what he says in John chapter 20 at the end of the book. He said, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. So why did he record them? These are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. And by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. John says, I only picked a few of these. I could have listed so many. He did so many things in my presence. And remember, John was an eyewitness. But he said, here's why I wrote these. Here's why I picked these out. So that when you look at him, you would believe in him. You'd recognize he's different than anybody else. He's not just (laughs) meta-human. He's God in human. And, And he truly is a marvel. Guys, my goal in this series is not really to get you excited about miracles. My goal in this series is to get you excited about Jesus because he's the one who does those miracles. So this weekend, we're going to look at one. We're going to look at the first miracle Jesus ever did, the one that we have recorded. And so if you, in your Bibles, you can go to John, John chapter 2. It's a 
pretty simple story. In some ways, it's almost simple in the context of it. But I think it's got some profound implications for us. Look at it in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so there's this wedding, Cana. Cana is about nine miles from Nazareth. And give you some context, up to this point, Jesus has not been doing his public ministry. He's gathering his disciples, but he's really done nothing on a major public scale. John the Baptist, his cousin, has recognized him, baptized him. But as Jesus goes with his mother to this wedding, and, and Cana was a tiny town. Nazareth only had about 500 people. Cana was even smaller. And, and for a wedding like this, weddings were the biggest event that a town would have, especially a small, poor town like this. Everybody looked forward to it. And so Jesus gets invited. He's got a plus one. Well, in his case, it's a plus 12 because he, he brings his disciples along with him. And, and as we're going here, look what happens. They got a problem at this wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, again, let me give you a little bit of context why this is a big deal. Uh, for us, when we go to a wedding, you know, we have the ceremony and sometimes it's the reception or the meal that follows. I mean, a long wedding for us is three, four hours, the whole event with it. Maybe it can extend. Back in that time period, a wedding went somewhere between three to six days. You hear me again, three to six days. It's huge celebration, huge preparation. And wine was a fundamental part of it. I mean, it's part of every meal, part of the celebration with it. In fact, when, when Jesus' mother points out they have no wine, this is a very embarrassing situation. Because you've got this groom, and in a lot of ways, we've got to understand what the wedding represented. When a young man wanted to marry a woman, it was a long process. The betrothal process was long. They formally were engaged. And during that time period, he had to prove to her family he could provide. He would have to show what his house. So a lot of them, if they didn't have a home themselves, they would build on an addition to their parents' home. Because he had to show his future in-laws, I can take care of her. He had to show he had the means to do so. And the final culmination of that was this wedding where he showed the whole town, look, I can provide. And right at the center of it all is the wine. And I got to think somewhere along the way, this young man and his family, they're trying to cut corners a little bit. This thing's gotten away from them. They're trying to stretch the budget of it. And they just didn't get enough wine. And I can feel for him. I don't know if you've ever paid for a wedding. Our two oldest girls, they got married six weeks apart from each other. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun season. I mean, literally, I, I started getting hand cramps from writing checks. It's just like you watch all the money in your account, and you're just like, bye-bye, it's gone. And that's, it just it's out the door. And it's part of it. I mean, as, as dad, you kind of try to stay on top of it, but you just realize Man, this is a costly affair. And I can't fathom if I'm trying to feed everybody in the town and it's going to last three to six days. But when the wine runs out, man, this is a shameful event that is ultimately going to mark this young man that he couldn't provide. 
And so Jesus' mother, Mary, she goes to Jesus. And, and all she says to him is, they have no wine. Now, Jesus hadn't done any public miracles up to this point. But she, he, he's about 30 years old. He's grown up in her household. And there's apocryphal stories of him practicing miracles. We don't know if those are true. But i got to believe as he's going and growing and he's learning the powers that he has and God works through him, his mother knows he can do some stuff. I mean, moms know these things. In fact, I, I remember when I was a kid, one of my favorite TV shows was I Dream of Jeannie. I mean, we'd come home from school and watch I Dream of Jeannie. And in it, I don't even remember the, the astronaut, Tony. He discovers the little genie bottle, and out comes the genie. But in this case, it's not the blue Disney genie, big creature. It's a blonde. She's good looking. And, and she's there, and she's going to do what he wants as far as wishes. And so the whole series, it was always aggravating as a kid, because Tony, who's in charge, he never wants her using her powers. In fact, he's always trying to hide that and downplay it. And, and his buddy, Roger, is always telling him, man, why don't you have Jeannie do more? Man, she could fix this in a moment. And as a kid, I always related with Roger. I mean, I thought, man, if I had Jeannie, I'd be like, make it rain. Take care of Tim. We're going to fix some things. Now, as you look at this, Mary's looking at Jesus, and she's not treating him like a genie. She's asking respectfully. But she knows he can do something about it. He has powers unlike anybody else. But look at Jesus' response. And I got to tell you, on first reading, it feels a little harsh. She asked him and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, just that line alone. I got to tell you, in our culture, if I were to go home and I saw my wife said to one of my sons, hey, your room's dirty. And his response was, woman, what does this have to do with me? Um, I would have something to do with him real quick. Because for us, even that word woman is, is kind of harsh. Back in that culture, the word woman, it, it was actually a sign of respect. It was a little bit like ma'am today. And so in the South, we say, yes, ma'am. And our boys say that as a sign of respect. So when Jesus is saying this, he, he's not saying it dismissively. And even when he says, what does this have to do with me? Notice how he follows it. He says, my hour has not yet come. And he'll say that phrase several times. What was his hour? Well, he knows his hour and his mission was ultimately to go to the cross. And up to this point, he's not done any miracles publicly. And so for him to unveil this now, he knows this will start and it'll ultimately lead at the cross. So he's saying to her, as much as I want to respect you, I'm really following the lead of my father. He's the one that's in control. Now, I love Mary's response, though. Look what she says. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is a great example to us. I mean, she wants him to do a miracle. She wants him to work. His first response is, I've got to see if this is within the father's plan, the right timing in it. And so she just leaves it with, just do whatever he says. Just listen to him. I'm going to put this in his hands. Look how Jesus responds as it continues on with it. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. 
Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of it and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Jesus looks over, and and they've got these six pots, stone vessels. And they're big. It says in, in the text, each of them were somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons. And these are these purification jars. And you got to remember in the Old Testament law, there was purification rituals they had to do to make sure you were clean to eat. They would clean vessels in the household. And, and so they would follow these rules. The problem was, over time, the Jewish leaders kept adding to the rules. And they added to the law. That by Jesus' day, the, the rules around purification... It was not only that you had to wash your hands, it was a specific way you had to dip it, and then you had to hold it up, and the water had to go down a certain amount with it. They had so added to the rules that it had lost its meaning a lot. And I love, you'll see Jesus a lot of times, he always kept every one of God's laws. But any of these new ones, he'd almost go out of his way to find a way to really kind of poke a hole in it. And I love as he's looking around, he decides, yeah, let's use those jars. I mean, it would have been easy to use the flask of wine that had already been emptied. He could have brought in all the empty flasks and say, yeah, we'll just fill that up again. He goes, no, we're going to make a point here. Let's use those jars. And I want you to fill them all the way up. Now, if you do the math on that, 20 to 30 gallons times six, it's somewhere between 120, 180 gallons. So just even taking the middle of it, 150 gallons of wine. He says, just fill it all the way up with water, dip it in, and then take this to the master of the ceremonies. And and this is the guy in in the town. He'd be like the wedding coordinator. He's in charge of everything. And, you know, maybe it's just me. When I read through this story, I always picture Frank from Father of the Bride. And I just see him there kind of, Mr. Bonks, you've run out of wine, Mr. Bonks. And, And so here's this master of ceremonies. The servants go do this. And by the way, the servants are the only ones that know Jesus is doing this. Just the servants and his disciples. Look what happens with it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone who serves good wine first serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. I mean, he kind of almost condescendingly calls this groom over and he goes, you've done this all wrong. This isn't the way you do things. I mean, you've got your good wine and your bad wine. Now, I'm not a wine drinker. It's not my thing. It's not. And I know that pains probably some of you because you go, Tim, you live in wine country. Some of the best wine in the world's produced right here. I, I, just not my thing. But from time to time, I have to pick it up or I'll be buying it. I'll be in the store. And, and if you notice, if you ever buy, at least in the grocery store, the, the wine is kind of sorted according to shelves. You, you go to the shelf there and right there on the top shelf, the eye level, you look at these wines and they have these beautiful body, bottles and they always kind of the name of it from the estate of kind of real flourishing name. And you look at the price tag and whoa, it's expensive. Now here's the problem. I don't drink wine and I'm really cheap. And so I learned pretty quick, if you just keep going down shelves, 
Every shelf, the bottle doesn't look quite as fancy, and the price starts going down. And then, you know, if you look all the way to the bottom at the floor, I mean, I'll look down there, I'm like, wait, does that say two bottles for $8? That's my wine. And I'll pick it up, and it, you know, by that point, the name is always goofy. It's like Three Amigos, or Party in a Bottle, or Night Train. No, I'm, I'm not buying Night Train, I promise you that, at least not at this stage of my life. It's not very good wine. That's why you probably don't want to send me to get it. There's these levels with it. And, and, and what the host is saying to this guy is you don't realize it. I don't know what you were serving earlier, but this stuff is the good stuff. This is incredible wine. And I love this about Jesus. I mean, I just love when he's taking care of this guy. You got this poor guy. And, and, and instead of just kind of, okay, I'll make some wine for him. I'll give him a little bit. He says, let's blow it out. Let's do 150 gallons of it. And, and let's not just make wine. Let's make great wine. Let's make the great stuff. You know, I don't even think this bridegroom knew who did it for him. I don't know if he even knew all that happened behind the scenes. But Jesus' disciples did. And notice the last verse of this story. This is the important one. John points out this is the first of his signs. So this is the first of the seven he's going to write about, and then the eighth being the resurrection. Jesus did it Cana in Galilee. And look what he did. He manifested his glory. He showed us he's not like any other human. He showed us what he's all about. And look at the response. And his disciples believed in him. See, they're on this journey with Jesus. At this point, they know he's a rabbi. They know he's a teacher. They hope he's a Messiah. And suddenly he does this and they go, whoa, there's something more here. And they believed. And over the course of this series and over the course of this book, we're going to be looking at these other ways that Jesus keeps manifesting his glory. Jesus keeps showing he's a marvel that is worthy of belief. And as you look at these stories, it's not just what he wanted to show to his disciples, but because we have them written down, it's what he wants to show us. Remember, my goal in this whole series, I, I don't care if you get excited about miracles. I want you excited about Jesus. Because there's just some things in this that he's done for all of us. In fact, as we finish out, I, I just highlight three things that stand out to me. That what we learn about Jesus in this story is that Jesus cares even about the embarrassing parts of our lives. Jesus cares, even the parts of our life that when you look at it, and think about it with this story. I mean, out of all the miracles of Jesus, it's, it's interesting to me this is the first one. Nobody's sick. Nobody's dying. There's not some huge, massive, urgent need. There's not demons. There's not storms. There's not earthquakes. There's not all the big stuff of life. Really, all they're dealing with is a faux pas, an embarrassing situation. A young guy who's not able to provide what he hoped to provide for his bride and for the town and for their life. And you might look at it and you go, yeah, is that really worthy of a miracle? Well, it was to Jesus because he cares. 
There's nothing really big to Jesus. It's all the same when you're the God of the universe. But I love that he cares enough that he shows up like this. Because I'll be honest, I got embarrassing parts of my life. And it's not the earth-shattering stuff. But I'm telling you, a lot of times I find myself in a place where I can't deliver what I need to. Where I look at it and everything in me feels a little embarrassed and I don't want anybody to know about it. And I kind of pull back. And sometimes, and this is so dumb, but sometimes I'm embarrassed even to tell God. Because why should he care about this? This is my fault. I got myself in it. And I often tell myself, you got yourself in it, you need to get yourself out of it. And I think in those moments, I'm missing out (laughs) on the care of the God of this universe. Guys, I'll remind you what Peter tells us. He says, give all your worries and cares to God. Give all of them. You don't have to sort them out. You don't have to decide, oh, this is a big one, or that's an important one, or this one's my fault, or that one's not my fault. He says, don't worry about any of that. Just give it to him. Give it to him. Why? Because he cares about you. And if you ever doubt that, read this story again about a young bridegroom who finds himself in a place and the problem he has, I just don't have enough wine to take care of this situation. And Jesus goes, I got you. I care. The second thing that stands out to me, look, look at this. Jesus didn't just come to improve the status quo. He came to make all things new. And I love this about this miracle. Guys, Jesus didn't come just to make the status quo a little bit better. And you'll see this in every miracle he does. He didn't come to make better water. He made wine. You realize how radical that is? You realize what it would take? It's not just a miracle of time. It's a miracle of all the properties in it. And and it's not just the water and the wine. Notice as well, he looks at it, and here's these jars. Here's these jars that represent the Jewish purification. They represent the old law. They represent the old way that you got right with God, that you had to keep the right rules, and you had to wash the right way, and you had to do all the right things. And Jesus looks at that, and he goes, oh, man, this is going to be a great illustration. Because the old way, the status quo is over. We're not doing that anymore. I got new wine. And if you read through it, a lot of the religious leaders, they didn't like it when he did this kind of thing because they liked the old way and they liked the old rules. That's why Jesus said, you know, you really can't put wine, new wine in old wineskins. They just don't like it. And he's bringing in this this whole new covenant, this new way of relating to God that only he could do miraculously. And guys, I say this because a lot of you, you approach Jesus thinking he's just here to improve the status quo of your life, thinking he's here to make you a little bit better, thinking, if, you know, if I just look at Jesus and he's a good example and I'll just be like Jesus and Jesus was nice to people and I'll be nice to people and Jesus said these things, I'll say these things and Jesus didn't do wrong stuff so I won't do wrong stuff and Jesus did right stuff and I'll do right stuff and we sit there and we look at it and we kind of almost WWJD, what would Jesus do? And if I can just model and be a little bit better, I'll be a good boy or I'll be a good 
girl, and I can do it. Here's the problem. Jesus was a marvel. You're not. And I'm not. And we will never be good enough. I mean, before you ever ask yourself, what would Jesus do? You need to embrace what did Jesus, what he did. What he did. Because he did what we couldn't do. He died on a cross. And he did it not to make you better, but to actually make you new. To make you different. That's what Paul says. Look at it. He says, anyone who's in Christ, it's not that he's a better person. It's not that he's an improved person. He says, no, if you're in Jesus, you're new. You're an actually new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And you look at it, this miracle just shows it in a small way, in a profound way, what he could do from water to wine. Boy, what happens when he takes human beings who actually believe in him and he takes them and he transforms them that you're not the old you. You're a new creation in him if you embrace it. The final thing in this story, and I love this. I just love that Jesus freely gives us what we desperately need but what we cannot provide. He, he does it freely. I mean, you get to the end of the story, there's no point in it where he pulls the groom aside and says, hey, uh, here's the bill for the wine. Hey, uh, I mean, 150 gallons of wine. And it's good stuff, by the way. Here's what you owe me. I don't even think he ever told the guy. See, Jesus loves enough that he looks at it this guy who is never going to be able to provide what he needs to. And Jesus said, yeah, I'll give. I'll freely give. And the only people who knew it were some servants and his disciples. Because he wanted them to remember. He wanted them to share this story with you and me. He wanted them to remember. Remember at that wedding feast? Remember around that meal? When he took water and he was able to transform it to wine. Because about three years later, they're going to have a meal with Jesus. And he's going to do another transformation. This time he'll take the elements of the meal. And, and he's not going to physically change them, but he's going to transform what they meant. These elements that they would use, this bread and this wine that they would use to look back on the Passover. He goes, yeah, actually, we're going to make this mean something totally new. And Paul tells us what he says in 1 Corinthians. When Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread. And he looks at me, hands him the bread, and he says, you know what this means now? This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper. And notice what he points to in it. He says, this cup is the new covenant. This isn't the old covenant anymore. It's not the laws of it. It's not the purification. It's not the rules you keep. I am totally changing the system. It's brand new. But for it to be brand new, this is a new covenant in my blood. And so when you drink this, you remember my blood shed for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
See, guys, Jesus changed everything. Jesus gave us what we couldn't provide for ourselves. And whether it's at a wedding feast where he takes water and he turns it into wine, or it's a Passover meal where he looks at his disciples and ultimately he's given it to us as well. He says, you, you take this bread and don't just look at it as bread. Look at it as the fact that I loved you so much my body was broken for you. You see this cup of wine, don't even think about wine. Think about the fact that my blood was shed for you so that I could do for you free of charge what you could never do for yourself. You know, as we finish out today, we're going to do that. We're going to remember him. I can't think of a better way to finish this message than to remember what he told us to. And I'd encourage you, if you have the elements there, go ahead and take them and you can get them in hand. And I'd encourage you, you know, Paul says when you take this, this is a time of reflection to examine yourself. That you don't ever take this lightly because of what it means. And so when you think about his body broken, you think about blood shed. Maybe you're here and listening to this and you have some embarrassing things in your life. Things you've been too embarrassed to give to God. Let this remind you how much he cares. Why don't you give them to him now? Maybe you look at this and you've been trying to improve your life. You're just trying to get better as hard as you can. And the reality is you're never going to get there. Because he didn't come to just improve you. He came to change you. And you don't need improvement. You need a miracle. A broken body and shed blood for you. And maybe you're listening to this and if you're like me as I think about this, man, I don't deserve this and you don't deserve it. I could never pay for this, but he did. That he would freely give me what I could never provide for myself, which is forgiveness, life, adoption, all the things that he gives his body was broken. His blood was shed. Let's remember him together. Will you take with me? Take and eat in remembrance of our Savior. Take and drink this cup of the new covenant. And let's remember him together. Will you pray with me? Lord, I do pray for each of us. I pray that we would, throughout this whole series, through each of these messages, just step back and realize that Jesus is the marvel. It's all about Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we can celebrate his power. We thank you for his forgiveness. Lord, I thank you that you care about every element of my life and you paid for every part. So as we remember this day, I pray for any that maybe they struggle accepting this. I pray for any that maybe they still feel embarrassed about their lives. Lord, I pray for especially for those who are out there. They are trying so hard to be better. 
when really what they need is to be new. I pray today they could experience new creation in you because of what Jesus did on the cross. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, I want to encourage you as we finish out. Maybe you're still thinking about these concepts. You know, as you listen to this next song, focus on the words and make these words your words. Make it your prayer as we remember what Jesus did for us. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.